kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and he came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany. This is because they all look at Christ's life from the same perspective. In other words, they start from the ground up. Especially for Matthew and Luke, they begin with the birth announcement of Jesus Christ, the earlier years and then his later years, where Mark begins with what we think to be the beginning of his ministry, although we find from John's Gospel he was doing ministry prior to this. John, however, in his Gospel which is not one of the synoptic Gospels, he starts from the top down. He begins with the eternal Word of God coming down and taking on human nature. So his perspective is different. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in all three of these Gospels, they focus on the Kingdom of God. Matthew is up front. This is why he gives the, the family tree of Jesus, because he's establishing the fact that he is the King, he is the Messiah, and he is the one who is going to inaugurate the Kingdom of God. Luke also deals with the kingdom of God, and so does Mark. But Mark, it's this underlying thread that runs through his gospel. So I'm going to go back and pick up some things. And if I could, as we look at Mark's gospel, several thoughts will come in regards to the, the kingdom of God. But we see the kingdom preached, and this is in chapter 1, verse 1 through 826. Now what we find in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15... As we find Mark presenting the beginning of Jesus' ministry after his baptism, after his temptation in the wilderness by Satan, in verses 14 to 15 of chapter 1, 
If you notice with me now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what we are given by Mark here in this record is there are two declarations and then two commands that summarize Jesus Christ's mission. In other words, he is revealing the fact that God's sovereign clock has struck. The time is fulfilled. It is time now for the Messiah to present the good news of the kingdom of God. This is a joyous occasion. Something new and radical is happening here. Jesus is going to talk about this in chapter 2 of Mark's gospel. If you want to write this in your notes and go read it this week. But in chapter 2 of Mark's gospel, the religious leaders are going to come to Jesus and ask him why his disciples don't fast like their disciples and the disciples of John the Baptist. And Jesus is going to reveal to them by a parable that I am the bridegroom. These are the attendants of the bridegroom. And now is not a time for fasting. Now is a time for feasting. It is a celebration. The Messiah is here. The groom is here. Not only that, but in the same chapter, in chapter 2 of Mark's gospel, Jesus is going to reveal the fact that he has come not to pour new wine into old wineskins. I didn't come to reform the old order of things. I have brought something new and radical. And he says, I am going to pour new wine into new wineskins. Now what's interesting is if you look at Mark's gospel, that's after he calls the first disciples, after he calls Matthew, the tax collector, This is right before he is going to choose the twelve out of all the disciples. Jesus is going to make this declaration. Something new and radical is happening here. The kingdom of God is at hand. I am the Messiah, the expected one. So Jesus, Mark says in verse 15 of chapter 1, says that he was preaching the gospel of God. This is a subjective genitive, meaning that God is the source of this gospel. And he was saying that fulfilled is the time, is the literal word order from the Greek into English. That fulfilled is the time. In other words, this is the season. This is the opportune time. This is the proper time. Now, What's interesting about this word that that is used here, put on the lips of Jesus Christ, is the Greek word kairos. Now, Kairos comes from the Greek word kara, which is head. And it reflects that which comes to a head or to take full advantage of. And so this word kairos and used in relation to time talks about a suitable time or the right moment or a fixed or definite time. In other words, we're talking about a divinely divine moment in time. It is fulfilled. Now is the time for the Messiah to declare the good news. And some examples of this particular usage of this word of divine appointment of time, Romans chapter 5, verse 6, you can go read the whole verse, but we have mentioned there, as Paul writes, at the right time Christ died. See, everything is happening by God's calendar and His time clock. Not by ours, not by man's, but by His. He's governing everything. He's guiding everything. And so Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on the Passover was all a part of the divine calendar of things. God appointed this time for the Messiah's arrival and now it has fully come. And it's interesting because he uses this term for the fulfillment of time play role. And he is going to use this term and we find it in other places in the New Testament. Paul uses it in Galatians 4.4 and we know this usage in this verse when he talks about the fullness of time. And Paul writes this in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent His Son. Everything was in place. Historically, I mean, I could go through the whole historical record of everything that took place up until this moment to set the scene for the coming of the Messiah, and now He is here. The time is fulfilled. It is time for Him to come. 
or Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 talking about the fullness of times and if I could literally translate it this way from the Greek, unto a dispensation of the fullness of the times. And here in this passage in Ephesians 1.10, the exact same words are used here that are used in Mark's gospel on the lips of Jesus Christ in chapter 1 verse 15. This is God's divine calendar. This is the appointed time. Now is the time for the proclamation, and this is a part of the proclamation of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is at hand. Why is it at hand? Because the Messiah is here. The Messiah has come. He is in your midst. And because your king is here, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the good news. This is the good news that the nation of Israel was waiting for. But what we're going to find is that they didn't fully understand the full plan of God. They did not understand the significance of the kingdom of God. They were looking for a physical kingdom that was going to be established and Rome was going to be conquered and all the Gentiles were going to be driven out and Israel would have their own king upon the throne once again and they would be their own people and their own nation with their own king ruling over them. But Jesus Christ is going to reveal something so far different than what they ever expected. He is going to introduce the fact that this is a spiritual kingdom. This is a dimension that they were not expecting. This was not something about a national deliverance. This was a spiritual deliverance. And this is why in Mark's Gospel, after we have the proclamation, the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand, the first miracle that Mark records is Jesus driving out an unclean spirit. This is spiritual warfare. Not only that, but when we have the summation of Christ's ministry again in chapter 1, verse 39 of Mark's Gospel, if you want to look with me, he says this, And he went to their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. He is showing that the spiritual reality of the coming of the kingdom, there are kingdoms in conflict. It is the kingdom of God against the kingdom of Satan. And the stronger one has come to denounce the strong one and to plunder him. Not only that, but when Jesus chooses the twelve and He appoints them as apostles, notice how Mark describes their ministry in chapter 3, verse 14. And He appointed twelve of them so that they would be with Him and that He could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. There's a spiritual dimension to the kingdom that they needed to understand. Now, I'll just tell you, I'm summing all of this up if you want to go back and listen to my series through Mark's Gospel, you can go back and listen to it and Matthew's and, and, and Luke's. They're all there online so you can go watch them. But I'm assuming that you understand these things. The, the complexity of the kingdom of God is staggering, but here we have to understand something. There is a present reality and there is a future revelation. They were looking to the future revelation. They were looking for a physical kingdom. And Jesus was showing them there is a spiritual reality to this. In other words, the present reality of the king, kingdom is the fact that the king is going to reign in our hearts of those who repent and believe in him. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. This is a joyous time for us. But it comes with great implications for the nation of Israel. And it comes for great challenges for us as believers. But there is to be a future revelation when the King of Kings is going to defeat the enemies and He's going to establish His messianic kingdom on earth and He will rule for a thousand years. This is the millennium. 
So they were coming to grips with the reality of this. They were looking for this national deliverance. They were looking for Rome to be squelched and driven from the land. They were looking for their own king to sit upon the throne. When he enters into Jerusalem, this is what they're expecting him to do. They're thinking he's going to walk into the temple and he is going to go to the fortress of Atonia and he's going to drive out all the Roman soldiers who were housed there and he is going to take over the city and he is going to establish his kingdom on earth and this is what they're looking for. But he is going to tell them this is not what's going to happen. This is why James and John, they come to him and they expect that this is what he's going to do. And so they ask him, Jesus, in chapter 10, verse 37, we have this request of you. Will you grant us to sit on your right and your left? In other words, they want to sit on the highest place of honor and authority as he ushers in his kingdom here on earth. And Jesus says to them, you don't know what you are asking. Can I just say that sometimes we look at what God is doing in our life and in the world we think He's doing bigger things. Can I just say He's probably doing even bigger things than we can ever imagine? How many times we look at adverse circumstances in our life and think there's no way that God can deliver me from this. That He is the God of the impossible. I mean, this was the, the, the result that the, the disciples came to in chapter 10 when Jesus is teaching about the rich young ruler and he confronts him and he says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And literally, he is revealing the fact that it is impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God and say, they, can anyone be saved then is their question to Jesus. And he says, for man it is impossible, but not for When all of a sudden we come to the man in chapter 8 and he's healed of his blindness, it happens in two parts. Jesus spits and puts on his eyes and then he sees things and they're blurry and he sort of sees men out there and then Jesus does it again and then his eyes are open and he sees everything clearly. 
Now this is interesting because this happens right before Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Christ. But then Jesus tells him, I'm going to die. And Peter then pulls him aside and rebukes him because he's talking like this. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He saw, but he didn't fully see. He was the Christ, but he didn't understand that he was the suffering Messiah. He thought he understood the kingdom. He didn't understand the kingdom. This is awesome stuff, all right? So go read it for yourself. Then he leads us then into chapter 11, verse 1, into 1620, the kingdom of God being brought in. This brings us to the triumphal entry of chapter 11. Everything has been moving this way. Everything has been preparing for this. Our outline as we looked at it last week, the servant Jesus came to minister. Jesus presenting himself to the people in service. And then the servant Jesus gives his life. This is presenting himself to the Father as the sacrifice. And this declaration comes in chapter 10, verse 45. All of this preparing the way as he moves towards Jerusalem. And now he is going to enter into Jerusalem. Jesus coming to the end of his journey. It is time for Passover. This is no mistake. This is all planned. This is by design. This is intentional. This is a powerful time because the nation is expecting so many things. But what Jesus is going to reveal to them is so much they didn't expect. Not only that, he's going to challenge their own religiosity. And he's going to challenge ours. In chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel, verse 32, if you look with me, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. There were those who were along the way with them, and they were pilgrims coming towards Jerusalem for Passover. They knew something big was going to happen, but they didn't understand fully of what was going to happen. And the disciples still weren't clear as to what was going to take place. They didn't want to accept the fact that he was going to die. This is not what we expected our Messiah to do, but here's the amazing reality of it. And Mark is the only one who announces this fact that Jesus is the one who is walking ahead of them. He is leading them intentionally into this. He is going to show them not only how to suffer, but also how to triumph. And he goes first to show us the way. So he's preparing them in chapter 10 of Mark's Gospel, verse 33. He says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Always with hope. <laughs> Jesus always gives the passion predictions with hope. On the third day he will rise again. So what we have when we come to Mark's Gospel in chapter 11 is the last chapter of Christ's earthly life. Chapters 11 through 16 are the final week of his life. And so it's interesting that some have reflected as Mark's Gospel is a passion narrative with a really big introduction because he focuses so much on the passion narrative, the end of his life. He gives such a concentrated effort on these things. Obviously, these things are important for us to understand. So therefore, he gives this time to them. And it's interesting because as he starts in chapter 11, he is going to express this thought that runs all the way into chapter 13. Everything is about the temple now. Everything is about the temple. 
This is really interesting because as he's ushered into Jerusalem, verse 11, it says that he enters into Jerusalem, he comes into the temple, and notice what he does. He looks around at everything, and then he left for Bethany with the twelve because it was late. That's really anticlimactic, isn't it? Hosanna, right? Glory to God in the highest. Our Messiah has come. Jesus walks in, looks around. I'm out of here. What's happening? So we under, Mark is moving us this way. So if you look at chapter 11 through 13, notice what happens. We have Jesus' first visit to the temple in verse 11. Then he is going to come back again in verse 15. It says, they came to Jerusalem again. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned their tables of the money money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. So here's his second visit. And the second visit to the temple, he's going to clean it out. This is not what the Messiah is supposed to do. (laughs) This is the temple. He's going to return to the temple then in chapter 11, verse 27, and then he's going to teach in the temple, chapter 12, verse 35. Everything in these chapters is about the temple. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, notice with me, the disciple comes to him and doesn't name who the disciple is. And he was going out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, he's trying to draw this response from Jesus. Isn't this amazing? Look, look at the wonderful stones and how wonderful these buildings are. Look at this amazing temple that Herod has built. Yeah, he overtaxed us, but look at how amazing this temple is that we come to to worship. And Jesus says, oh, you know what? Not one One stone is going to be left upon another. It's coming down. And in AD 70, it was destroyed. Rome came in and sacked the city and the temple was destroyed and not one stone was left upon another. Vespasian started the attack. His son Titus came in and finished it off. What Jesus declares here in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, came to to fruition in the life of the nation of Israel. This was a dark time for them, but Jesus told them it was coming. So what's happening in regards to all of this? Let's go back to chapter 11. Now I'm going to walk through this rather quickly. This is the only second event that Mark records, Matthew records, and Luke records, and John records. There are only two events in the life of Christ that all gospel writers record. The first one is the defeating of the 5,000, and the other one is the triumphal entry, which tells you the impact that these had on the gospel writers. Passover is now only a few days away. There are throngs that are following him. From chapter 10, we see this as he's heading into Jerusalem. They make up the crowd as they usher him in, as they put their cloaks on the road, and they put the branches out in front of him as they usher him into the city. They're all a part of this. He's back in Bethany where he raised Lazarus from the dead, chapter 11, verse 1. He is by Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And here we're going to find the religious leaders as they are plotting to kill him. Verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. This man has authority that they don't have. Something radical was happening here and they had to stop it. They had to nip it in the butt. Can I just say this happens a lot? It's really frustrating. When you see radical things that God is doing, and man steps in and says, we got to get this thing under control. 
Just leave it to God to do. One of the greatest church experiences I had was my father was the pastor. Community Bible Church down in Southern California. The church started and it was just an amazing beginning. We were renting a school in Palm Crest. And it was awesome because everyone just showed up and everyone was about serving and doing ministry. There was no designated youth leaders and college leaders, or any of that stuff. People just stepped in, right? They saw needs and stepped in and did something. And it was just an amazing time. People were just doing. If there was a need, someone responded. Someone in the body needed something, they would go and, and people would step up and, and meet that need. They didn't have to have a, some committee meeting and we didn't need to vote on it. People just did. And the Spirit of God was moving. And all of a sudden, one of the elders said, we need to deal with this. Someone has to be in control. There is God. All of a sudden in the elders' meetings, one of the elders came in and he set aside the Word of God and he set down Robert's Rules of Orders. And if, you know, if you're a Baptist, you know what that is. He sits down Robert's Rules of Orders on the table and says, we need to be governed by these rules. No more reading the Word of God, no more prayer. Now it's man controlling what God is doing. And from that time on, my dad knew he had a fight on his hands. I'm not going to control this, but I'm not going to let you do it either. God is doing something here. Just get out of the way. <laughs> or yield yourself to be used by Him. But man is forever doing this. And so here something radical is happening. And the religious leaders are, something's going on. We don't like the fact that He's drawing these crowds. He has way too much authority by the way He speaks. We have to end this now. How little did they know? <laughs> the preparation comes in chapter one or chapter eleven, verses one through six. The, the geographical setting is important. They're approaching Jerusalem as Mark reveals this to us in verse one. He mentions two other places as they are approaching Jerusalem. Bethphage. If you want to say it literally, it's Bethphage but it doesn't sound so good, so we'll just say Beth Edge. And Bethany. The first name, this is the only time this name is mentioned anywhere, is with this event. Intriguing, because it literally means house of unripe figs. Why is this important? Why does Mark give us this reference? Because notice what happens in chapter 11, verse 13. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went up to see if perhaps there would, he would find anything to eat in it, looking for fruit because he saw that it was flourishing. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples were listening. So Mark is preparing us for what is to come. Why does God take it out on a fig tree? And we have people questioning the deity of Christ, Suggesting there's no way he could be the son of God because he wouldn't do this to a tree. Curse a tree? Why would he do that? It's unheard of. It's so unkind. <laughs> we don't do that. It's an object lesson. A very important object lesson. The other place is Bethany, and this identifies the place where Jesus is going to spend the night. So as he would do ministry down in the temple, then he would go to Bethany, and this is where he would stay. The other notable place is the Mount of Olives, and this is where these two particular towns are located. Mount of Olives had already become a place of worship in the days of David. 
At the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., Ezekiel had a vision. He saw the glory of God departing from Jerusalem and setting on a mount of olives. This was looking to the future. And in Ezekiel 43, 1-5, it's going to talk about the second coming of Christ. He is going to come and He is going to stand upon the mount of olives and there is going to be a great upheaval and the mount is going to split in two and there's going to be a valley that runs from east to west. Why? Because the Messiah is going to return His second coming. He's going to come and take on the enemies. And He's going to stand with His remnant. And He's going to punish them. The great warrior king will come again. This is the kingdom plan of God. All of this is fitting into that. They could only see this one small moment. And Jesus is trying to say, there's so much more happening here. Be joyous. This is a glorious time. There'd be plenty of time for fasting. Jesus took definite, calculated, premeditated actions. This was His timing. He sends the disciples on. He is preparing this. He knows when He's going to come in. It's going to be at the time of Passover. He has the mode of transportation. He tells the two disciples, you go find this colt and you bring it. No one's ridden on this thing yet because anything that was devoted to something sacred had to be used fresh. No one could have used it for any other purposes whatsoever. This was a sacred moment. But instead of coming on a horse, like this great victor, he comes in on a colt, a donkey. If we think conquering king, he would come in on a steed, right? Take over. I'm going to take on the Roman army. No. He came in humility and peace to the city of peace. And he laments because they didn't see the day and which was dawning. He was also going public. If you look at Mark's gospel, and over and over, Jesus would tell them, don't tell anyone. Don't say anything, right? Early on in his ministry, in Mark chapter 1, we show that immediately, because of the miracles that he was performing and the teaching, that he was proclaiming things that, that no one had heard before, and there was such authority that the word was starting to spread that he couldn't even go into the major cities anymore. He had to go to the outskirts and outlying towns. Why? Because there were so many people coming to find him. It wasn't time for him to go public yet, but now was the time. Passover is here. Now it's time for them to understand what is happening here. It is time for me to make myself public. He was going to court danger, and he did it with a calculated purpose. He knew what he was going to face. This is all by design. As he approached in verses 7 through 10, his celebration, right? The pilgrims have followed him. He's coming in in this element of lowliness and humility, not some conquering hero. There is this loftiness about it, though, as they shout, Hosanna, right? Verse 9. Now, what's interesting about this word, Hosanna, I put in brackets there the na ending. This is taken from Hebrew. This is a suffix in Hebrew, non. And it intensifies and it shows intense emotion. In other words, in Hebrew, this saying means, save us now. This is what they're shouting. Save us now. Save us now. Save us now. It's interesting that if you look at verse 9, Mark tells us that they were chanting this, and there seems to be two groups of people, one before and one after. Those who went in front and those who followed were shouting, and it would seem that this was an antiphonal chanting. In other words, 
The first group who was going before, they would shout Hosanna. The second group who was coming after, they would respond with, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Our king has come. He's going to establish the kingdom. He's going to come into this magnificent temple, right? And he's going to see it all. And he is going to establish himself as our king. He enters into Jerusalem and he walks into the temple and he looks around. Now it's interesting that Mark will use this word, periblepo. He uses it over and over. It's another thread that runs through his gospel. And every time he uses it in reference to Jesus, he looks around with this scrutinizing gaze. And then he makes a declaration based upon what he sees. He looks around the temple, he takes it in, and there is disgust. We're going to find this out because the context bears this out. If you notice, the triumphal entry ends in chapter 11, verse 11. As he comes into Jerusalem, he enters the temple, and then he leaves again. And immediately on the heels of that, we have the cursing of the fig tree. Then on the heels of that is chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, where he cleanses the temple. And then comes in verses 20 through 25, a teaching lesson about the fig tree. He curses it in verses 13 and 14. He comes back to it in verse 20. And notice, and they were passing by that morning, and they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you have cursed has withered. Now begins the lesson. This isn't some random act by Christ. He was trying to help them understand something that was going on here. He was exposing something about their religiosity. So if we could, this is the layout of Mark's gospel, and just follow the pathway of the author, and he'll tell us where to go. We have Jesus' first visit to the temple. He's going to come back and cleanse the temple, and wedged in this is the cursing of the fig tree and the teaching that arises after that. In chapter 11, verse 27, if you notice, most of your English translations will tell you what's going to happen. But in chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus begins to interact with the religious leaders as they question his authority. By what authority do you do the things that you are doing? How dare you turn over the tables? How dare you drive out the money changers? What right do you have to do this? By what authority do you do these things and say these things to the people of God? It's amazing because at this particular time as Jesus enters into Jerusalem at Passover, this place was a farce. When you would go into the temple over Passover, they referred to it as the Bazaar of Annas. Now Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests. Now technically Caiaphas was the high priest. Annas, he was still controlling in other words, Caiaphas was the puppet, Annas was the puppet master. They were filthy rich because of this market that took place within Jerusalem, within the, the, the court of the Gentiles, within the temple area. It was the only place where they could do business, where Gentiles could come. But they had this open market there. 
And Annas and Caiaphas, they would sell franchises so people could set up these booths and sell animals to those who were coming to worship and offering up sacrifices. Now imagine this. When they come from Passover, every day there's to be two sacrifices and then one on Passover. So now you have to buy the animals for this. And Josephus, in his writings, he talks about the fact that at Passover, that there was an amount of almost 300,000 lambs that were slaughtered for Passover. Think about it. 300,000 lambs slaughtered for Passover. Imagine how many animals are in that temple area. Because this is where they're doing business. Not only that, but the, you have the money changers, and they're in there, and they have to pay their temple tax when they come to the temple, but you cannot use pagan money because you cannot have pagan monarchs on the coins for the temple tax, so they have to exchange the money to pay their temple tax. Well, of course, there's a profit to be made. Annas and Caiaphas, not only did they sell the franchises, they also skimmed right off the top of all the profits that were coming in for all the sales that took place and all of the money changing they were filthy rich. Jesus comes in and sees this, and not only that does he see this massive marketplace, the bazaar of Annas, but he also sees that people are passing through the temple. In other words, as they move from the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem and into the rest of the city, they were taking a shortcut through the temple. They didn't want to go around it. They wanted to get there in a hurry. I'm going to go from point A to point B. And so they had all this foot traffic that was going through the temple precincts. And this is what Jesus beheld when He came. He gave His scrutinizing gaze as He looked at all of this taking place. And when He came back the next time, He drove everyone out of the temple. His declaration to them in verse 17, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Jesus was so tender, so tender that children would come to Him, but Jesus was so tough that He would not tolerate the defilement of God's house. My desire is to be like that. To have the theological backbone to take the stand that you need to stand in the face of all opposition and yet at the same time be so gentle and so kind and so compassionate that children will even come to you. We're all fine with the one part of the Messiah but not the other part of the Messiah. I want a Messiah that I can approach and find tenderness and compassion and love, but I don't want a Messiah who takes a stand in the face of defilement. Jesus is going to use this as an object lesson because He looks at this fig tree and it's full of leaves and it's promising something. It's abundant. It's promising fruit, but there's no fruit. He looks at the temple and the nation of Israel and He sees the same exact thing. You see all of this religiosity and all this foliage all around, but when I look through you, I see no fruit whatsoever. There is no righteousness here. It is self-righteousness and ritual. Here's the caution for us, brothers and sisters. Take heed to his object lesson about spiritual hypocrisy and fruitlessness. We have these grand edifices that we set up with stained glass windows and crosses on top and everything else. 
We go through the motions. We're there on Wednesday night. We're there on Sunday morning. We do all the things we're supposed to do that Christians are supposed to do. But are we bearing fruit? Do we really have a relationship with God? Are we really a part of the kingdom of God? Or are we a mockery? Have we taken that beautiful holy temple and have we defiled it? Jesus confronts them in chapter 7 as he deals with the religious leaders and he says, you know, you all have these rules. They came to Jesus and they they asked him, how come his disciples didn't wash their hands before they eat their meals? There was a, a cleansing that needed to take place, right? But then they said, you also need to cleanse yourself. If you go and interact with the Gentile peoples and go in the marketplace, if you touch a Gentile, you have been defiled. You need to cleanse your hands after you come back from the marketplace. All of the utensils, if you buy something in the marketplace, a pitcher, a cup, whatever, you have to take that home and wash it because it's defiled. It's been touched by the Gentiles and you need to be cleansed. And Jesus says, you wash the outside. You're sanitized, but you are not sanctified. It's about the heart. That's what defiles the man. He says, you say this is Korban dedicated to God, and yet you set aside the Word of God when you do this. Read chapter 7 of Mark's Gospel. Three times he indicts him and says, you have set apart the Word of God. You have invalidated the very Word of God and His commands. Honor your father and mother. You have these practices and many more like it. It's a sham. You draw near to God with your lips, but your heart is far from Him. Something amazing is going on with Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is far grander than you could ever imagine. It isn't just about a physical, it's about the spiritual. What's your life like on the inside? Is there true righteousness there? If there is, there should be fruit. Or is your life just marked by foliage? Self-righteousness and ritualism. Jesus is going to build off of this and Mark as he records this. It's interesting because the, the rest of the chapters follow like this. The controversies within the temple with the religious authorities from 1127 through 1244. In chapter 14, verse 1 through 15, 47, we have the condemning to death of Jesus by the religious authorities. And in chapter 13, the coming destruction of the temple. Jesus said, this is all over with. I'm not coming to reform it and restore it. I'm coming to replace it. In Him, we encounter God. We need no other sacrifices because He is the sacrifice. In Him we have been redeemed. In Him we belong to God and we are a part of the kingdom of God. Amen? Such a joyous occasion for us.